What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and this week I'm interviewing Greg O'Brien, and we sit down to discuss the new Netflix series, Brand New Cherry Flavor. If you're into those comedy horror films, I remember when I was young, I loved them in the 80s. It was a great genre that seemed to disappear in the late 90s and early 2000s. Brand New Cherry Flavor brings it all back, and it's available for you to watch on Netflix. Definitely check it out. If you're worried about spoilers, we do our best not to spoil it, but there is certain things that we reveal, and I don't want you guys, if you're wanting to see it, to be spoiled. All right, with all that said, here's my interview with Greg. My first question for you is, how did you first get involved? Was it as a producer or as an editor? What was your role in this? Uh, I, I came on as an editor first, so I've been working with Nick Antosca since he did Channel Zero. So he, he did some writing producing before, but his first TV series as a showrunner was the first season of Channel Zero, which was really my first season of, of, of TV as, as we kind of know it. I had done The Girlfriend Experience, but that was very unlike TV. Yeah. So Nick and I did Channel Zero and kind of figured out these weird workflows, and that's how I ended up acting as a producer too and so my producer role is only really as it applies to post Mm -hmm. so i don't really do any producing like before it starts but i do come on pretty early so in the case of brandy cherry flavor we were finishing a series called the act and he said hey the next thing is this book brandy cherry flavor you should read the book because we're going to do the show i think they had pitched it before the act he and lenore but they were still in the process of adapting it and so there was no script yet and i read the book and the book is really long the show that we made that everybody's seen, it's really only about the first fifth of the book, maybe. Oh, wow. So I read the whole book and I'm thinking like, wow, Nick, like I don't have no idea how we're going to do this, you know, because it's such an odd tone. It's 90s. It's big. It's expansive. And he said, well, first of all, we're only going to do the first part. But second of all, like, let's figure it out together. So they sent me the adaptation of the pilot when they got it done. And it was a lot different. They made a lot of changes. They kind of explained to me what they were going to do downstream. And then from there on until it's time to shoot, they kind of keep me abreast of what they're watching, what they're listening to, any kind of references, art, kind of anything that comes their way. So if he sees a cool movie, he's like, hey, check out you get a chance to rewatch scanners, like check out, check that out or whatever he'll see that kind of hits him. And so I'm trying to keep up as best I can. And if they cast somebody, they're saying like, oh, good news. We cast Eric Lang. You should check out his work and so on and so on. So I'm not weighing in on those things. They're just kind of keeping me abreast to be polite, I think. And then when we really get ready to do post, yeah. that's when the producer stuff kicks in. So I work with a producer called David Kirchner who's one of the best in the business at post-producing. We've done several shows together, going back to Girlfriend Experience. I think we've done a feature together too. And so we're kind of partners on the post-producing. And, and really what that entails is he's doing all the hard stuff. He's interfacing with the network, the studio. He's dealing with post-budget, post-schedule. But what I'm able to do, which I think I hope helps him, is I kind of weigh in on staffing, scheduling, any uh, equipment workflows from an editor's perspective, mm-hmm. you know, so I might say, oh, you know what, you know, who would be great to be the other editor would be, you know, this interesting person. In the case of Brandon Cherry Flavor, we brought on Ken Ramos and Curtis Clayton, who had worked on the act. 
Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a no-brainer because we really enjoyed working with them before. So so that that part was easy. But there's also, you know, coordinators and post supervisors and vendors. And, you know, in a lot of cases, you want to reuse a vendor from another show. In a lot of cases, you want to find new vendors. So I would get involved with kind of that process it, it, with David Kirchner. And then we go back to Nick and Lenore and say, hey, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? And then they make kind of the ultimate call. And then once we're filming you know editing is first you know that's the thing i'm doing every day as i'm editing i'm keeping up to camera but i always in with nick and brandy cherry flavor is no exception i'll do definitely the first episode and the last episode mm-hmm. so i'm the first one on the last one off and then in the interim i may pick up other episodes in this case i co-edited episode five with my assistant steph perez I just do whatever I can do to help out the other editors. So if they want me to look at something or if they're wondering about tone or if I happen to see a cut and there's a music cue that I think is really good that we want to put in the other shows or, you know, play off of, I could say not Mm -hmm. use the same cue. It's really just kind of a manager of consistency, maybe across the episodes. And then I'll do all the VFX music color and uh, sound. So I'm supervising all of that to just maintain consistency across the episodes and make sure that we're all using the same tools to tell the story in the same language, if that makes sense. You mentioned scanners. And one of the things I noticed is the tone in this series. And in fact, in the series, they even reference Cronenberg at one one point. Mm -hmm. So how did you work with the team to figure out the tone for this series, but also find a balance between the humor moments and the sort of scary, serious horror moments? That's an awesome question. And I think that was the hardest thing. That was our biggest challenge. I mean, first and foremost, the tone starts with the book and then carries over to the scripts. I think that's probably the most remarkable thing about the source material we really wanted to hold on to that. I think horror versus comedy, we're working on that until they pull it out of our hands. If you make it too funny, the horror loses its teeth. And if you make it too scary, you don't have a license to laugh. The actors, I think, did a tremendous job of being fearless in terms of going places that it kind of doesn't make sense to go. And then it's kind of our job to to shepherd those performances back into something coherent that's got a good emotional continuity to it so that it does make sense for these characters. And it's hard to make characters human in a world that's not necessarily our real world. So I think establishing the rules and the tone of this unique and specific version of L.A. in the 90s you know, that, that was really something that we worked our butts off to, to keep consistent and make work. And I, I hope we did it, but it, it, was, it was certainly up until every lock, we're like, are we sure? Is this funny enough? Is this funny in the right place? Is this scary in the right place? And, you know, just like, especially the scene where they have to get rid of the body. Mm. Uh, one of the later episodes, where Lisa is dispatched with James. You know, that's a crazy scene. I mean, there there's a body on the floor and they're just trying to decide what to do with it. And these guys aren't criminals. And, you know, dealing with sort of how we were going to play Roy and Code in that scene against Lisa, it, it was it was a really challenging scene to get right. And it, I think we got that scene in, in pretty good shape. I'm really proud of what we did with that one. So that scene stood out because there's like that moment where he's like, I can't remember the line, but it was something along the lines of like, I wasn't planning on wrapping a dead body up tonight in a shower curtain or something like that. Yeah. And then the other scene that sort of stuck out humor wise for me was when the spider bite 
situation, I guess you could oh, call yeah. it. I don't want to give it away, but I was like, oh, someone's going to get bit and die or something along those lines. And then I was like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That director, Matt Sobel, did such a good job with the Wonners in Lou's house. For th Those are really long takes mm -hmm. in Lou's house when the spider comes out of the box. There's a cut right after you see the spider, but I think that's a really long Wonner right after that that lands yeah. with the sun. It's like and, down and the hallway. So he killed it with those long takes, and he did a really good job. And it was really a matter for us of music was the trick with that whole sequence in Lou's house, where the music started, where it stopped, and kind of what that music was, hmm. was that that's kind of how we decoded that one. Wonders can be either really amazing or really troublesome in the sense that you're putting a long shot in here without cutting, and some people might find that slower, but yet, for for example, in this one, that scene holds, like, it works. So do you get nervous about pacing, or do you have to work the stuff around it to make the pacing work a bit better? Yeah, that that's, that's a great point, and I think that, you know, when you do Wonders really well, like Matt Sobel did in this case, and Ganja Montiero did a couple in the second episode as well. Mm -hmm. When you do them really well, you're still accounting for the beats that you're covering, mm -hmm. right? You're thinking like, okay, as long as I'm seeing this with Lou or I'm on Lou here, as long as you're getting the beats, they're, they're wonderful and beautiful and the audience might not even realize they're in one. Mm -hmm. I think when you do, I found times when you find a one or a long take where it wasn't as carefully curated yeah. usually you fill it it's it's a sound trick usually you know you okay. throw in a sound off to the left or, or you you know you kind of add in a, a music moment that gets a little more active to fill the gaps mm -hmm. and i think it's usually almost always you can help it get where you need it to go they're a lot harder i think than not, i mean editors know this but i yeah. think non-editors may not realize that you know, even though it's a wonder, it's still quite a bit of work goes into making it live and sort of be uh, engaging for the audience mm -hmm. so you don't lose it. Because you've mentioned music a few times around the wonders, but in, in general, as an editor, how do you like to work with music or how do you like to bring it in for a scene? Well, I'm a pretty relentless temper. I like to temp a lot with um, score from other movies. And so what, what I usually think my kind of Bible when it comes to music is, where does it start, where does it change, and where does it stop? And I think those three things are the most important tenets to follow if you're gonna use it for storytelling. And yeah. sometimes you have to use it for wallpaper. I try not to, but you know, look, sometimes you have to. When you're using it for storytelling, you want it to start at the right place where it starts to help you tell whatever the story of the scene is. You wanna carry it through that little story or little arc being told and you want to end it at the end of it because it's a nice subliminal unconscious way to help the audience kind of play along at home, if that makes sense. And then where you put the changes in the music, you bring in a percussive element here, you lose a string element there, whatever the handy example might be, you know, those things that every single thing kind of matters that the music does. And that's also just a tenant of editing for me is that mm -hmm. everything you do matters. You cut, you don't cut, you switch coverage, you don't switch coverage, like all of those things matter once you've kind of established a language early for, for the particular thing that you're working on. You mentioned earlier that the script was very different when you first saw it compared to the original pilot, but also in editing, lots of things will change, get moved around. So was there anything that changed in the post-process story-wise? 
Big time. One of the things that happened on Brain and Cherry Flavor was was COVID. So they still had two weeks to shoot. Oh man, the way the way the publicist said it was just editing. <laughs> oh man, they had two weeks to shoot with COVID. They shut down production in Vancouver. The showrunners mm-hmm. came back. We switched to a work from home protocol, but no episodes were completely filmed. There were holes in every episode. So we went through every episode thinking, what do we still need to shoot? Do we need to shoot it? If we don't shoot it, how do we get around it? And, you know, Nick and Lenore, listen, they are the most creatively generous people. I mean, as far as letting me be involved and and having like big ideas and Mm -hmm. really hearing me out. And and that's in no way me saying that they're taking all the ideas because that would be false. But you know, the three of us really worked this thing to the to the bone trying to figure out, like, what do they actually need to shoot? Mm-hmm. And we lost entire plot lines, uh, entire plot lines that just, like, couldn't be shot. So that's pretty remarkable, like, what you've got then, considering, like, how good well, the series is. <laughs> like, you've well, lost you. complete plot lines. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Code's character was was bigger. Yeah. He, he, there was there was more to it. Yeah, I'm not afraid to get too under the hood here. Uh, Nick and Lenore here, that's in there, man. I'm fine with it. You know, there were, and from the book, this is part of the book where Lisa can kind of project with her mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. She's kind of learning about this energy power that she has. And that was something that was going to be explored that kind of we just weren't able logistically to make it happen. There was another script she was working on at one point. Parts of that were filmed and we kind of reverse engineered that out. But it's funny because in the natural editing process, even without a shutdown, you always lose subplots, I think, mm-hmm. in in big TV with the mythology this big. It, it's hard to keep all those balls in the air yeah. and still catch them all. So I think the natural process of, elimination that always happens editing just happened in a higher stakes environment on this where it was Mm -hmm. literally like we can't film everything what are we not going to film and how do we make sure the show still works and and that was really our 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 job for the back half of this edit i mean i was in edit on this for 16 months wow (laughs) that is that is pretty long (laughs) it's the longest thing i've ever been on because i remember talking to steven rivkin about avatar and he was like oh i was on it for like a couple of years i was like geez Mm -hmm. So this is your avatar. <laughs> yeah, this is my this is my weird macabre little avatar. Yeah, you talked about the scene with the wrap up of the bodies being really challenging. Mm-hmm. What made it so challenging for you? Well, I think it, it was just tuning all those performances. You you've got three really great supporting actors there with Hannah Levine, Manny Jacinto, and Jeff Ward, who are watching you know, Rosa as Lisa Nova wrap up the body. So if you think about the coverage there, I think it was a three shot and two two shots mm-hmm. versus Lisa. So, you know, you've got the shots you need, but you're still, you're pacing comedy, you know, which is always a challenge. It's a situation where making a character have human being logic is kind of out the window because of the heightened situation of it. Lisa's on drugs, so we're trying to define what that does to her performance. You know, you're, you're thinking yeah. like, okay, so she's impaired because she's still high on the psychedelic of the moment was with her. Oh, it's from Boro's rejuvenating milk bath. <laughs> yeah. So she's still impaired and heightened from that. So we're trying to figure out what's where's her head at? How's she going to play this? Because Rosa, 
you know, Rose is amazing and, and she gives you so much. It's, mm -hmm. it's, I know this sounds cliche, but it's an embarrassment of riches and kind of what you can do with the performance. It's that game, you know, that she went there. And so you've got all these, it's kind of, um, you have too many good options almost. So mm -hmm. figuring out where she is is part one, figuring out how much gore to show is part two. And then you've kind of got this interplay between the three supporting characters. And it's just, you know, you change one thing and you're like, oh, that's amazing. And then you kind of watch it back and you're like, oh, well, we'll have to change Lisa to do that. And we're like, oh, well, we don't want to change Lisa. So you go back and it's just, it's kind of this tango that you do where you keep swapping out a bunch of good parts and eventually you land on enough that you've got, okay, this is 80% working now. Now let's just fit the last 20% to this. And, you know, we had really good partners in UCP and Netflix on this. Mm -hmm. And I think they were able a lot of times to kind of, um, check our instincts and i think we were pretty aligned most of the time i think we hit it close enough to the bullseye that everybody knew what we were trying to do towards the end and so they were pretty good about you know maybe this is a little too gross or maybe this is a little too funny here and you know sometimes you agree sometimes you disagree but they were basically our test audience for this whenever i've seen rushes from horror films is it immediately removes the scariness from it because you hear you know like mm -hmm. someone on the side is like now and you know like people are yeah. like making gross things happen and you can kind of see them how did you work that footage selling the cut to the producers the directors the studio and everything you really have to bring your a game so how do you approach taking those scenes that start with stuff that can be funny because you know workers on the side pushing buttons and stuff and make it more scary i think a big part of it is temping in the sound effects and the sound design and and trying to make it live the way that i did it for branded cherry flavors i i generally started with the scary version i think in my assembly at least my first assembly because mostly exactly what you're saying you want to get it to work first right so it's like okay how do i get this scare or this gore to work and then once it works, you're like, okay, good. Now it works. I've taken out all the cues from the crew. I've, you know, temp VFX helps a little bit too. And um, I've got the right squish or, or scream or, or punch in there, whatever the sort of sound effect that you need is. And then after that, I start working towards, okay, now where's the, whatever we're doing to, where's our special sauce? Whether that's comedy or in the case of that big scene in episode four, where's the romance to that? And that was a Curtis Clayton special. I don't want to take too much credit for that because Curtis did that and we that barely got touched after his first cut I think but you know you start with the horror and then you work out to making it ours you know how does it become our horror and not just horror and and that is just a process of kind of working backwards I think from it being successful horror moment or suspense moment you just work backwards to get the other stuff does that make sense the scene you're mentioning at the romance it made me think a lot about Cronenberg so was there a lot of Cronenberg mm -hmm. influence in the creation of this a lot of the talk when we were starting the show was Lynch. And I think because the pilot is more Lynch influenced and that was our first priority, but it was obvious that there was a lot of Cronenberg in it. And I think any time you're dealing with body horror, there has to be. He, I mean, everything that body horror is kind of comes from David Cronenberg, you know, so I, you can't avoid that influence. But I, But I do think episode four heavily 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 was a Cronenberg influence episode yeah. for sure now I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview sure 
And I noticed when we had our cameras on, did you have a shoe collection behind you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so usually my question is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Uh-huh. But since you have shoes, is there a guilty pleasure shoe that you like? Oh my gosh, Gordon, they're all guilty pleasures. <laughs> but yeah, Air Jordan 3. It's, oh, I yeah. have probably 10 different Air Jordan 3s. So some of them are old. Some of them are new sort of colorways. And then I actually customize too. Oh, yeah. So I have some that I customized myself. How do you customize them? It's like hand aging. This okay. would be a whole other podcast if you want to start a new <laughs> career. But uh, I take a pair that I've worn for a while. The paint starts to crack and I'll strip the paint off and repaint them. And then, oh, interesting. But I'll paint them in sort of muted tones. And then I've got kind of a system to age the plastic, make it look aged and swap wow. out the laces. So basically the goal is to make them look like they've sat in a box for 30 years and never been worn, but they've, they've got like an aged kind of patina. So how do you choose your shoes in the morning? Because <laughs> you had so many in the background. It's, it's a thing, man. It's it's a whole thing. I, I wish I, I don't have as much of a system and process for that as I yeah. do for everything. That's for sure. But yeah, there's a couple of pairs I wear all the time and a few that I'm kind of like, oh, did I really need these? I never wear them. <laughs> We used to have on our street like a specialty shoe shop, Yeah. but then COVID just decimated it, oh, which sucked. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Gordon, thank you so much. It was really nice to talk to you. I'm a big fan of the pod, so it's a, it's a pleasure to come on. So that was my interview with Greg. I'd like to thank Greg for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Evan Winch for cutting this episode, as well as Netflix for setting up this interview. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.